Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 2, going through verse 4 this morning. We kicked off our Habakkuk series last week, uh, really just an introduction. We were in verse 1, but it was mostly about the book as a whole. So we'll pick up where we left off in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2. If you can't find that, you can always use the table of contents. uh, Or for Habakkuk, go to Matthew and then maybe 20, 30 pages uh, toward the beginning. And you'll probably be roughly in Habakkuk at that point. Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. I've said before that one of my favorite TV shows is The West Wing. Uh, And in what may be its most iconic episode, its most well-known episode throughout the entire series, it shows the president, who's supposedly a devout Catholic, praying out loud in a church. He's just been caught lying to the public about an illness so he could get elected. He had survived an assassination attempt earlier in the year. And now the funeral of his secretary, who he had known since he was a teenager but had just died in a car wreck, has just ended. He's alone in the church. And he prays, saying these words with some uh, slight edits. She bought her first car, and you hit her with a drunk driver. What, is that supposed to be funny? You can't conceive, nor can I, the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God, says Graham Greene. I don't know what he was talking about that day, because I think you're just vindictive. What was Josh Lyman, a warning shot? That was my son. What did I ever do to yours but praise his glory, praise his name? There's a tropical storm that's gaining speed and power. They say we haven't had a storm this bad since you took out that tender ship of mine in the North Atlantic last year. 68 crew. You know what a tender ship does? It fixes the other ships. It doesn't even carry guns. It just goes around and fixes the other ships, delivers the mail. That's all it can do. I give thanks to you, O Lord. Yes, I lied. I committed a sin. I've committed many sins. Have I displeased you? 3.8 million new jobs. That wasn't good. Bailed out Mexico. Increased foreign trade. 30 million new acres for conservation. Put Mendoza on the bench. We're not fighting a war. I've raised three children. That's not enough to buy me out of the doghouse. Am I really to believe that these are the acts of a holy God? A just God? A wise God? Who needs your punishments? I was your servant here on earth, your messenger. I did your work. But who needs your punishments? And who needs you? That prayer may not feel like things we're supposed to say out loud. It may not feel like things we're even supposed to think. But I've always appreciated that part of the episode because it's just so honest. When we read our text today, there might be parts where we went... Where we think Habakkuk, he's not really supposed to say that, is he? Is he allowed to say that? This is in the Bible. This is a prophet praying to God. Is he allowed to say those words in that situation? But it's in Scripture. And Habakkuk isn't ever corrected for praying this way. 
In fact, I think if we read it correctly, if we'll understand these verses rightly in this introduction to Habakkuk, setting the stage for everything else that we'll see, this opening prayer, this opening complaint that he has, I think it's going to show us how we might be able to respond, how we might pray as people living in a fallen world like ours, as people living in the midst of evil like we do. So today we'll see three realities of a fallen world. And then briefly, we'll think about how we might respond to these realities. Three realities of a fallen world. First, the first reality of a fallen world we'll see in these verses this morning is that sometimes in our fallen world, it feels like God isn't here. It feels like he isn't here. Verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Habakkuk's first complaint is that it feels like God's not even hearing him, like he's not even listening. He's been crying for help and no help has come. And because Habakkuk believes, because he understands God to be good and loving toward his people, he's assuming that if God hears him, if God is listening to his cries, that things would be happening. If God heard what he's saying, things would be different. Therefore, he begins his complaint to God, which he expects God to hear, by saying that God must not be listening when Habakkuk cries, when Habakkuk complains to him. But you see what that shows? It shows that Habakkuk isn't actually under the impression that God doesn't hear him, that he can't hear him. He knows he hears. Why would you be praying to a God you think isn't listening? He's praying, complaining as if it's been like God hasn't been listening because he knows that he actually is. He actually does. He knows God hears. He knows God knows all things. So he's crying out to God. He's calling attention to what Habakkuk feels is the injustice of God not to act. And he's highlighting that if God had heard his cries and he knows God has, then God should have done something by now. The situation should be different by now in Habakkuk's eyes. How long are we going to keep doing this, God? I've been crying for help for so long. What, have you not heard me? Are you not listening? What's going on here? Habakkuk is speaking as if God hasn't heard because God hasn't acted. Which is where he goes next. Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. He was acting like God couldn't hear him, and now he's transitioned. Actually, you know what? Maybe you hear me, and you're just doing nothing. Is that it? I've been crying for help, and it's fallen on deaf ears. I've been sounding the alarm, raising the awareness of the violence I see and experience to you, my God, and you haven't saved us yet. You haven't done anything. Habakkuk's cries here echo what we see in Job. It's very similar to a prayer that Job prayed in Job chapter 19, verse 7, where he said this, Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. And I think that's an intentional parallel here by Habakkuk and the spirit who inspired him. Because just as Job was blameless... And yet was experiencing all the affliction that he experienced. So Habakkuk sees himself to be blameless and thinks he's in the same boat. God may be hearing him, but what good is that if God doesn't do something after hearing him? For Habakkuk at this point, it feels like God isn't there. 
it feels like he's crying out. And that it wouldn't make any difference if he were just an old man screaming at the clouds. Rather than a prophet speaking to his God. He's praying and asking God to intervene. He's bringing all things before the one who has all power and can change anything he wants. And yet nothing has happened to this point. And this hasn't just been a one-time thing for Habakkuk. He didn't bring it to God this one time and immediately jump to indignation because God, his butler, hasn't hopped to it yet. He begins by saying, how long shall I cry? How long is this going to go on? We don't know how long Habakkuk has been praying this way, but we're not actually starting at the beginning of the dialogue between Habakkuk and God. It's been going on for some time whenever the book begins. That's been happening at least in one direction, with no evident changes in Habakkuk's circumstances. And again here, Habakkuk's mirroring Job. Job chapter 19, that same section. Job 19, 2. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? It's not just that Habakkuk needs help. It's not just that Habakkuk sees violence. It's that he needs help and he sees violence. And that this has been going on for a while. It's that he needs help and sees violence. And there's no obvious end in sight. I've often said when I was talking to someone through a tough time. That it really matters if we know how long it's going to last or not. Maybe a semester of school was particularly hard. But you know that that semester is going to end. There is a date, a fixed date, where there are going to be finals, and then that semester is completely over, never to haunt you again, except for in your dreams ten years later, when you think that you never showed up to that class. It never has to carry you, carry with you afterward. It ends, it's over, it's in the past. You know it's going to end. And that matters. Maybe your department was shorthanded at work and you're just waiting for the new guy to show up and get trained. And then you know things are going to settle down for you. Having an end date really matters. It is always easier to endure something when you know how long it's going to last. I don't know if this is actually true or not. And I really don't want to test it out. But I've said before that I think I could endure pretty much anything as long as I know how long it's going to last. You could rip my fingernails out every morning. And if I know that's only going to last for X number of days, I think I might be able to get through that. Because I know there's an end date. It's not something that's going to last for forever. But sometimes the hardest part is when we don't have that deadline in sight. And for Habakkuk, that's exactly what's happening. He's saying how long because he doesn't know how long it's going to continue. There's no end in sight for him. He wants God to help, but he's literally asking for an ETA. Help! Help now! Help soon! But just tell me when it's going to come. As far as Habakkuk can tell, his life would look the exact same if God weren't there at all. It feels to him as if he's not there. And sometimes, in our fallen world, it does feel that way. It feels like we're crying out to the heavens and that we get no response. It feels like days pass. They become weeks and months and years and nothing changes. It feels like sometimes we get over one mountain just to discover that there's another one waiting on the other side. It feels like we work, we labor so hard, and all we receive for our labor isn't fruit. 
It's thorns and thistles. Sometimes in our fallen world, it feels like God isn't here. And when it feels like God isn't here, it often feels that way because it looks like everything is awful. That's the second reality of a fallen world. It often looks like everything is awful. Verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Everywhere Habakkuk looks, all he sees is sin. All there is is wrongdoing. It doesn't matter whether he seeks it out or not, it's there. It doesn't matter whether he actively tries to avoid it or not, it's there. And sometimes in our fallen world, it looks like everything is awful because we just can't avoid seeing sin. It's absolutely impossible. It would be like me telling you to stop seeing in color. Assuming you're not colorblind, you can't help it. If you're seeing, there are colors. They're there. You have eyes, don't you? Colors are everywhere, aren't they? You just can't avoid seeing color. And even if you are colorblind, you still see some kind of color, shades of gray, everywhere you look. It is impossible to have vision at all and to not see color. It is impossible for us to open our eyes in a fallen world and to not see sin and its effects. It's everywhere. Once you know what sin is, you can't help but see it everywhere you look. And I don't just mean this as a, a diatribe against how bad the world has gotten. I'm not saying that like, oh, well, it used to be pretty good. But now all of a sudden we look around and we see sin everywhere. It's not as if we're seeing sin everywhere and it's all of their sin and not our sin also. It's not just, oh, can you believe what they said on the news yesterday? No, Habakkuk said this and saw it 3,000 years ago. This isn't new. Living in a fallen world has been the case ever since they ate that banana in the Garden of Eden. And they broke the whole universe. It's been that way the whole time. We can't avoid encountering sin. And it might even feel for you like God is making you look at it. That's how Habakkuk felt. Why do you make me see iniquity? His understanding of his life and of all things is that God is ultimately in control. He is the all-powerful, sovereign Lord of all of creation. So nothing happens outside of God's power and God's plan. Habakkuk's life depended on God. So in his understanding, whatever he sees, it's because ultimately God wanted Habakkuk to see it. And he's asking why here. Because he's telling God, look, if you would just do something about this, then I wouldn't have to see it. I wouldn't have to encounter it anymore. So what's the deal, God? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you making me see these things? And he even continues, not just are you making me see these things, but why are you seeing them and doing nothing? Habakkuk comes dangerously close here, as he does several times in this book, to saying that God is enacting or even perpetuating evil. He is being boldly and, frankly, a little frighteningly honest with the God of the universe because he doesn't know what else he can do. 
He has no other option in this fallen world. It is awful everywhere he looks. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. It's not just that he sees bad things or notices sin around him. It's that they are heinous sins. And it's that they are everywhere. And it feels like it's only getting worse. Everything is awful and it is getting more awfuler by the day. But you know what? God wasn't shocked by this. God wasn't surprised by the sin that Habakkuk saw. And Habakkuk really shouldn't have been either. Because God told them exactly that this was going to happen. Way back in the history of Israel, the the people had decided they wanted a king like the other nations. Rather than simply being a people who obeyed God's laws and having him rule over them as their king, they wanted a king like everybody else had. So God granted their request. But he told them that this was going to end terribly for them. Their kings would take their sons as soldiers and their daughters for slaves. They'd take their food and prosperity for themselves. The kings would rule over them harshly, making themselves rich while the people suffered. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 18, where God is warning them against these, this idea that they want a king, even as he's granting it for them. He says this, And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And I think the fact that this is predicted, that this was always going to come, should tell us a few things. First of all, it should tell us that everything being awful doesn't actually necessarily mean that everything has gone off the rails. Everything can be bad in our eyes and still be going according to plan. As bad as it may look, as bad as it may feel, as bad as it may seem, God simply is not shocked by the atrocities of men. He knows they're coming. He predicts and warns against them before they come, so we have the chance to avoid them, even though we won't take it. He tells us all those things so we can be prepared to endure it. But I think the fact it's predicted also tells us it should also key us into the idea that sometimes these things don't happen to us. Sometimes they're the consequences of our own actions. Jehoiakim, the terrible king who has created the conditions Habakkuk is enduring, the the king who was the king while Habakkuk was having these complaints, he didn't just show up one day. The people asked for a man to rule them rather than God. And sometimes when you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. Very often, the problems we encounter in life are actually our own sins coming back on our heads rather than merely injustice perpetuated against us, the perfectly innocent ones who definitely don't deserve anything like what we're receiving right now. But regardless of the cause, in this fallen world, it often looks like everything is awful. Which brings us to the final reality of a fallen world that we can see from our text today. A fallen world results in injustice. Injustice is the inevitable result. It's the inevitable consequence of living in a fallen world filled with fallen people. Verse 4. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. What good 
are rules in a world like this? In a world like this, why have a law of God at all? I mean, what good are rules when everyone breaks them? From Habakkuk's perspective, the law of God, which we saw a couple weeks ago, according to Psalm 19.7, is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of God, according to Habakkuk, is paralyzed. It is ineffective. It's unable to bring about its consequences because it's ignored. The law in and of itself is glorious, and it points to the way things are supposed to be. Because we aren't perfect and are incapable of fulfilling it, it ends up condemning us. But even as it condemns us, it also points us to and shows us the perfection of Christ, who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. The law is good. It's built on the character of the God who is good. It shows us his design for the way our lives are supposed to function. Because he desires for us to live good lives which honor and bring glory to him. He has told us that which is good through his law, through his commands, through his precepts, through his rules. And yet Habakkuk says that everything that God has told us, everything that he had given them on how to live, how to be, is paralyzed. He says justice never goes forth from this law. And we can easily see how we might get to that place. If the law is ignored by some and followed by others, then the result is actually injustice for those who are following the law. That is why all of those baseball players from the 90s are not getting in the Hall of Fame. All of them who use steroids, the greatest stars of my childhood, the best players of that era, none of them are getting in the Hall of Fame. None of their records get to stand. They ignore the rules, and therefore they made the game unfair. If one guy is taking steroids and is asked to hit home runs in the same field with the same length of fence as this other guy who is not taking steroids, it is unjust by definition. It's impossible for this guy to compete with this one because they're playing under different rules. It's an unjust situation. It can't not be unjust. So whenever that happens, you get to a place where you wonder, wait, why is there even a rule at all? If it's not going to make any difference... If it's going to be ignored, if it's actually just the Wild West and whatever happens, happens, there are no rules enforced, then why have them at all? Where's the justice? Habakkuk is leading to that question. Where is the justice? For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Where there's no law, no standard where everything is power and force, then injustice is the inevitable result. When the rules are ignored, the game just isn't fair. This last Wednesday, the Arkansas Razorbacks played what might have been the most frustrating game of basketball that anyone has ever watched. There were 56 fouls in this game. Okay, average number of fouls in a game is 34. There were 20 Two extra fouls in that game. Enough extra fouls for both teams to be in the bonus, the double bonus, for a whole extra half. And we saw it live on television in that game. All three hours of that basketball game that's supposed to last roughly 75 minutes. 
It was the most infuriating three hours that I have ever watched whenever I was watching basketball. And I have been to Pee Wee Saturday morning, fourth and fifth grade boys and girls basketball games that were shorter and more entertaining than watching all 56 of those fouls get called on Wednesday night. It was awful. It was unjust. How dare they do that? And you know what the worst part was? We lost. Three hours and a win, I'll take that. We lost. And we lost in part due to some terrible calls that were late in the game. In fact, those calls were so bad, it was so egregious, that the next day the SEC issued a statement saying, hey, our bad. We got at least this one crucial call in the last minute exactly wrong. It shouldn't have been called the way it was. They came back a day later and apologized. They never do that. Why would they do that? It has no effect. It makes no difference. You apologizing a day later is the same thing as me saying they actually made that three when they didn't. It doesn't make any difference. The game is still over. It's been already decided. It just admits a mistake was made too late to make any difference. But that's so important and so frustrating because it creates injustice. When the rules don't matter. When someone can do whatever they want to someone else with no repercussions, like it feels is so often the case in our fallen world, it results in injustice. And we're the people who have to endure it. We're the people who have to live with it. It results in an aching feeling that it's all just backwards. The winner should have lost. The good guy should have won. The wicked shouldn't be prospering like they are. Everything's upside down, isn't it? I think that's certainly how Habakkuk feels. The law is paralyzed. Justice never happens. And when they say justice has gone forth, it's a perverted form of justice. It's actually just injustice. The wicked outnumber and surround the righteous, and the good guys just never seem to win. And you know what? I love the honesty that we see in these first three verses that we're studying today. God's word is not living in some fake reality. It's not off in a fairy land talking about a utopia that we don't understand, a utopia we don't see or experience. It's not assuming that your life is great or even good. It's not under the impression that God's people are always going to experience health, wealth, and happiness. It knows that is not true. And it's preparing us to live in the real world. Where sometimes your experience feels just like Habakkuk's. Where no matter how hard you try, you just can't seem to get ahead. Where no matter what you did to try to avoid it, your abuser may have still found you. They still hurt you for no other reason than because they could. Habakkuk is preparing us to live in a world where all you see is sin and this might go on for a lifetime. I think this book is so helpful for us when we endure things like this. But even though I think that's absolutely true, I have to also point out that the wicked here in verse 4 are God's own people. It's not someone else. The Babylonians haven't come yet. They haven't arrived yet in this story. It's not a story yet about how Christians are against the world. 
In these verses, it's a story about people who claim to belong to God, perpetuating injustice against those who actually belong to God. It's about the hypocritical and idolatrous wicked Israelites committing violence against the faithful and God-honoring members of true Israel. So as much as I want to emphasize throughout this series, throughout this book, that Habakkuk has a word for you if you are the victim of injustice. If you're the recipient of the pain and evil of this fallen world, I can't dismiss the idea that you might not be the victim here. You might not be the victim you even think you are. Perhaps there are those of us in this room who are actually the perpetrators of injustice. Maybe some of us are the wicked surrounding the righteous and prospering when we shouldn't be. As much comfort as there is in Habakkuk, with every one of those comforts comes a warning alongside it. And I think that warning is tied up in Habakkuk's question, how long? He's not the first victim to ask that question, as we saw. Job did as well. But God has also asked that same question of his people whenever they committed evil against not only each other, but also against him. Here's one example, Exodus 16, verse 28. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? He asked that question of his people several times. And every time he asked it, the subtext is this. How long do you expect me to allow you to continue in that sin? To continue this injustice? How patient do you expect me to be as a holy God and you a sinful man? Though it may feel like God isn't there, he certainly is. Though it may look like everything is awful, it won't look that way forever. Though injustice is the current result, it won't be the final result. Habakkuk will show us as we continue to study it over these next couple months, that God acts against evil and his justice is coming for all mankind. And we who live in this fallen world have to be prepared for that justice to come either against Christ on behalf of his people or against you for your sin. So how should we respond to these realities of life in a fallen world? How should we act in light of this world that we live in? Here quickly are three ways that we should respond to life in a fallen world like this. First, I think we should lament. We should be sad. We shouldn't grow numb to the bad news that we see or hear. We shouldn't grow numb to the sin that surrounds us, the sin that we still experience, the sin we still perpetrate and live in. We should cry out in anguish at the sin we see, knowing that it just shouldn't be this way. The fact we don't cry during the nightly news every night isn't because the news isn't bad enough. I think it's because our hearts aren't soft enough. So I think lament is where we have to begin. But second, I think when we cry out in lament, we have to cry out to God. We don't merely lament to the sky or to the universal ether. Our tears don't end on our pillows. We should cry to God, the one who sees, knows, who loves us and can and will do something about it. Habakkuk didn't just pray and didn't just pray once. He did so honestly and repeatedly with everything he had in him.
over and over throughout the book. You'll see and feel the words of Habakkuk being honest with his God over and over again. One of the commentaries I read this week said this. In a world where the rainbows of paradise lie shattered on the ground, where sin and violence abound, Habakkuk imagines a better world. One in which God will eradicate the devastation, sin, and strife in the present order. And so I think we should cry out to God with that same expectation. Which is the final way we should respond to life in a fallen world. We should expect justice. Habakkuk's complaint carries such force because his expectations based on God's character hadn't yet been met. He knew God is a good, holy, and just God who is all-powerful and is in charge of everything. Therefore, though it is like this, it will not always be like this. The fact he kept complaining that God seemingly hadn't acted yet shows that he still expected God to do something. He was still waiting for God to intervene. How long? Because he knew that there was a day in which it was going to end. God did act, and God will act. He has responded to the injustice, sin, and evil of our world, and that response was the cross of Jesus Christ. When he saw the sins of his people, when he saw his law being ignored, when he saw a world filled with violence and devastation, he sent Christ into the world. That that same broken, terrible, sinful world might not stay that way, but might be redeemed. That every one of us in our sin and the injustices that we have perpetrated, that we might be redeemed. He sent Christ to die on the cross to forgive the sins that had been committed. To correct the injustices that had happened. To fulfill the law that had been ignored. And through the sacrifice of Christ... All those who are counted righteous by grace through faith are saved and redeemed. When we cry out violence, as often as we may do that, we know that he will save, that he has saved. We are helped and delivered from this fallen world because God hears and saves his people. And he will hear and will save all who come to him. All who repent and believe. All who trust that though their sins are as scarlet, he can make them as white as snow through the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That though we live in a world of sin and death, because Christ came back to life, we have the promise and hope of a resurrection now and in the future. That though we live in a fallen world, that world will be made new. The old will pass away, the new will come. That as his justice comes, his goodness will be revealed. That's our hope. Even in the midst of a fallen world like this. That in the middle of the brokenness, we have a God who saves and redeems that which is broken. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to read your word. With your people. Thank you for these honest words of Habakkuk. Thank you for giving them to us. That we might be comforted by them. That we might identify with them. That we might be taught by them. 
that we might know that the world we live in is one that is broken and fallen and isn't ultimately as it will be, as it should be. That even though it feels like you may not be here, you are. Even though it seems like everything is awful, you're working in the midst of that brokenness and that evil and that sin. That we have a hope and a promise that we can be saved by you, through you, and in you. That your justice will come. And that for us, that justice has already come on our behalf against Christ. Receiving the punishment that we should have received so that you can be both just and the justifier of we who have sinned. We love you and we thank you for your gospel, which comes and redeems that which is broken. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.